the world is complex but understandable and um, every single delightful moment I think communicates a sense of um, you're okay, <laughs> you can keep going. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. In 1959, C.P. Snow wrote an essay titled Two Cultures, bemoaning the gap between science and the humanities. Seven years later, a woman was born whose life work seemed to be about proving him wrong. Natalie Gerajmenko was born in Mackay, Queensland in 1966. The second eldest of ten children, she grew up in Brisbane, where she co-founded the Livid Festival, which ran from 1989 to 2003. Natalie holds a startling array of degrees, including bachelor's degrees in biochemistry and physics, a master's in English, and she's done PhD work in neuroscience, computer science and mechanical engineering, uh, graduating with at least one doctorate. Uh, in the 1990s, Natalie moved to the United States, working as an artist in residence at Xerox Park in Palo Alto. She now divides her time between Barcelona, New York City and Hanover, New Hampshire, where she's an associate professor of art and art education at New York University's Steinhardt School, an artist-in-residence at Dartmouth College. Natalie's a kind of a mad scientist, a, ma a maverick environmentalist and a radical artist. She's the kind of person who plants trees upside down, sets up systems that allow us to communicate with birds and fish and creates feral robotic dogs. She is, quite simply, one of the most unusual and fascinating people I've ever met. Natalie, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Wow, um, thank you. <laughs> I'll, um, I'll try and be fascinating and unusual. <laughs> So you grew up in a household of 10, five boys, five girls. Uh, what were your parents' uh, strategies for, uh, for raising uh, such a large number of children? Um, I think it was um, um, an invitation to autonomy, right? Let's see how they can do it themselves. There's no, there's no way to manage 10 children in the way that uh, parenting, as I understand it now, the helicopter parenting, as it's called, or the... Um, you know, is done with a mob of um, 10, all with the kind of demands that any child has, um, which are uh, in, formed in opposition to the siblings, so that uh, it really does create an array. I think my parents were um, gleefully um, kind of observant of... <laughs> What madness could these children get up to? And so they herded us more like a mob. And uh, I mean, it's not exactly true that we didn't get the kind of um, individual attention. I, for instance, I think at about five, went on a suicidal streak where I couldn't live any longer without a horse and um, convinced my father uh, that, you know, in order for continued life I'd had to I'd have to have a horse and we lived in a tiny little three-bedroom house in suburban Wavell Heights Brisbane how it was totally impractical to get a horse but 
we got a horse. And in fact, then we eventually got 17 <laughs> horses. And um, they were kept behind the old people's home at Shamside Shopping Centre, where it's now a parking lot, um, and uh, sort of tucked away in strange little lost spaces in suburban uh, Queensland, where um, I spent most of my life, uh, as far as I can recall, I think I went to school, but most of the time I was horse riding. <laughs> so 5 a.m. every morning, um, horse riding. And it was my father who would shuttle me there. And after that, we'd have to go and do his rounds in the old people's home and then through the hospital. And He was a doctor, right? He was a doctor. And I, I think um, that experience of essentially apprenticing, apprenticing with him, you know, sitting mm. in the room with every um, very frail centenary... Cent- what are they called? Centenari- centenarians? Centenarians? Centen- anyway, <laughs> centenarians. Um, and uh, and I, in reflection, I realized that he probably took me along um, as, an, as, as one of these strategies. You know, I was always up late at night, and when the phone call came in at midnight, uh, and, you know, my father would attend... He was that kind of doctor, right, that house calls. My father would attend a domestic violence situation where, you know, there were a cowering wife and children and a drunk man that this, my father knew in his other guises as well, right, because of being a family doctor, he'd probably delivered the children, he'd probably, and to turn up with a, you know, seven-year-old little girl uh, has a way of diffusing (laughs) a situation and... Mm when I've seen the subsequent um, ways that police are brought into uh, um, domestic violence situations, I much prefer the sitting down and eating toast and and, and hot tea with um, my dad and his, uh, and you and this family that of course were going through a, a terrible trauma, but needed a, needed a kind, uh, you know, attentive person who knew knew all of them and knew them in so, their sizes. So, so your parents were clearly willing to kind of take risks in the way in which they uh, they, they they raised children, and uh, it seems to show up in some of the things your uh, your siblings have done. You've got a brother who's a uh, stuntman. Uh, somebody else is a commercial a commercial pilot. There's teachers. Uh, and uh, is it true that your mother was uh, the first person in Australia to have a microwave? <laughs> That's what I remember. She got out of this big commercial microwave. She was um, a techno-fetishist, um, which I am probably guilty of. She was interested in all of the convenience items that um, were being marketed um, and being talked about. Because I think she needed them, right? She needed the labor-saving devices that um, were around, but also tremendously hopeful in that that way. um, That there was a belief that that my both my parents held um, that you would have to hold to have a mob of children like that. That you know we can make it better. It Mm. is getting better. They. My father was a refugee. My mother was first-generation Australian. Um, had grown up in in poverty because her family landed just as the Great Depression hit Australia. And 
and they had a belief that it was going to get better. And they invested everything they had in the private school education of this mob of children. Um, and again, with this idea that education was going to give them a good life. And you, uh, you then, when you were in high school, got interested in the alternative music scene. I, it was uh, uh, the go-betweens. I think were uh, were, were quite quite important uh, in t in the founding of Livid. Tell us the story of how you uh, you and Peter Walsh end up founding Livid. Well, yes, that's a very interesting story. Um, it was. Uh, what does one do when one leaves school, right? Um, you really don't have any idea of um, what one could do or what needs to be done or what is going to work. Mm. And I had actually um, started my first degree but then uh, taken a, a year off to go and um, work as a bull catcher um, in Arnhem Land, which was interesting and uh, exciting. The traveling through Australia, uh, and I uh, had a baby at uh, with my high school boyfriend. Um, quite deliberately, I decided I wanted to have a baby, and that was actually the thing that made me think, "Oh, I should make some money." <laughs> so um, I went back to university with a, an infant, um, Jamba, and. This was uh, when you, at that time, I was doing some neuroscience doctoral work, mapping the early immediate gene expression of, of um, rats, their olfactory cortex, which was very exciting, but mm. had no, um, no palpable way to make money, right? That was not, um, and I suddenly felt um, responsible for this beautiful little girl. How interesting. So I'd, I'd always assumed Livid was, uh, was artistic expression first and, uh, and cash second. But actually, for you, you saw it as a, as a commercial enter, enter, enterprise, uh, as, as a, being one of the important aspects of it. Uh, not exactly. I, um, I thought, contrary to um, any kind of wisdom, <laughs> I thought that that um, that the music industry was an expression of um, alterity uh, and you know exploring political and you know romantic ideas of all sorts, and that it was a commercially successful area, right? That you could actually explore, have this artistic exploration, and make money. Mm, mm. I, you know that was. Um, not many people held that <laughs> had that idea, and so I um, was. So back then, and when you say not many other people had this idea, you, uh, Big Day Out is the only other big uh, big music festival of this kind at, the, at that stage in the late eighties, right? And it didn't exist. Nothing existed. Big Day Out was modelled on Livid. In right. fact, it was. Um, <laughs> I have to assert that it was um, the guys who organised. Um, Big day out. Who I went to with Peter, um, and Peter was—he was very shy because he was much more of a fan um, mm. of um, music. I and I liked music, but he, he 
he kind of idolized these um, people. So I would do the, um, I wasn't nervous speaking to any of these people, but Steve and Vivian, who were the biggest promoters uh, who sent bands around, who then later organized Big Day Art, when I went to them and said, look, I'm going to do an outdoor music festival um, with Triple Z, the college radio in Queensland, and we mm. have some ideas, and they said, honey, you'd be better off doing a wine tasting. Outdoor music festivals don't work. <laughs> and so um, uh, I said, okay, thank you for your advice, and, um, and we'll book these bands. And by uh, taking out a, a $5,000 car loan from Unicredit. <laughs> That's car loan, inverted commas, presumably. <laughs> That's right. Um, I was able to put some money down, and then we started pre-selling tickets uh, and were able, was able to pay for these bands. And the, the um, big concept was to, in fact, say that Brisbane had a music scene. Go-betweens were from Brisbane, right? We were going to reform the go-betweens and bring back to Brisbane these, this Brisbane music, right? Why had everybody left? Couldn't it happen here? So uh, we, we did. And I think... It was sheer luck. There was no, um, uh, it was sheer luck that it, it worked, um, partly because there was a um, conflict between the student union at University of Queensland, which was, um, had, was dominated by a right-wing kind of faction, and then this Triple Z radio <laughs> was dominated by the sort of far left, and there was a, um, a kind of crisis uh, brewing where the student union was going to take over the... Anyway, so I think that was... But it's huge in the early days, right? I mean, you've got Nick Cave, Tism, you had uh, Cruel, Cruel C, Caligula. Uh, you had a whole lot of superstars in those uh, those early years. And yet, by the time the festival's taking off, uh, you've moved on to the to the next challenge. You're in, uh, you're, you're in uh, Palo Alto. Uh, uh, by, the, by the early 1990s, uh, you're an artist in residence at Xerox. Um, why, what, what, were you, what, what took you to, uh, to, to San Francisco, to the extent you're comfortable talking about that, and uh, uh, what was it like to be an artist in residence at a technology company? Well, that was very interesting. I went to the US because um, the high school boyfriend had decided to um, abduct my daughter. <laughs> so um, when I found out where they were, uh, they were in San Francisco. So I was happy running the Levitt Festival. It was interesting. And we did a lot of, you know, it was a really important um, exercise conceptually for me to, to figure out, you know, what youth culture is. Because we had to call it a youth culture festival. It wasn't a music festival. We wouldn't have got the liquor license mm. if, um, or, uh, if we had called it a music festival. Um, and during that time... I really explored, you know, music is one form of culture, but it's not the only form. It was just the mm. one that I thought was commercially um, most successful. And so we did program uh, a whole lot of other, uh, you know, performance art and visual art as well. And the first visual art that we did at that first Livid Festival, you know, I put in a white tent, like a kind of a white cube, um, and... Uh, curated some beautiful pieces from all of my friends and uh, 
realized that that didn't work at all. Um, the, uh, that ended up being where people, you know, did drugs and uh, unseemly things. So um, mm. it became um, evident to me that, that there was something much more spectacular required. And so we moved through to dropping ping pong balls out of helicopters and uh, currency where little Jamba, my daughter's face, was, you know, um, was uh, <clears throat> on the on the note rather than Queenie Pooh. And the um, one of my favorites was Danius Kesmanis, um, as a Lithuanian artist from Melbourne. He soaked a, um, a rope in gasoline and then we rolled it in gunpowder. And we just had this rope lying around on the grass, um, hundreds of meters of it. And every now and then I would drop a match or someone would drop a cigarette on it, and it would sear through the crowd like a fuse, right? Um, and suddenly everybody would start to think, where am I? What am I? What, what is happening? You know, at this moment of, of um, uh, confusion, which kind of really worked as a piece in a field full of, you know, 20 or 30,000 inebriated 20-something-year-olds, right? It, uh, it was a different sort of work, um, mm. but... It had a powerful presence and um, kind of a sense of um, uh, rethinking who you are, where you are, why you're there, which I think was um, interesting. So that. So was that a precursor to, to Livewire, your uh, the, the work, uh, your most famous work from Xerox? Um, no, it wasn't. But it it did it did you know, the sense of what context you're producing work in and for, um, because the, there's a default that the museum or the gallery space is, you know, that's quiet, meditative, you know, hushed mm. space that we, um, and, and I don't think art has to be confined to that. Um, <laughs> um, so at Xerox Park, I needed a job. I had, I was doing actually some doctoral work at University of Melbourne, with a wonderful um, Helen Verin. If you had not come across her, she's um, a national treasure. But she was um, mm. uh, she was in philosophy there. And I was doing a PhD that had come out of some scientific visualization and some uh, other um, work on um, her work on Aboriginal logic systems. And what was interesting about her was not just her work, which is great, but she was the first academic I saw who actually used her research for activism. So she was involved in a lot of land rights hearings and um, arguments, and and that greatly impressed me. When I landed sort of in San Francisco um, in order to initiate um, what became um, over a decade and over 125 court appearance, you know, um, custody battle for my wonderful daughter, um, I was um, I was running livid from uh, California and doing my doctoral work from California and I but I had this computer science master's degree and and I was looking for work and I went to Xerox Park because it was famed and kind of the the home of the personal computer and yes. started speaking to the to the computer science department there um, telling them how important it was that they would give me a job. <laughs> and, um, and they did actually had just won a DARPA grant, which is the Defense Advanced Research 
program something um, for ubiquitous computing. Mm. And nobody knew what ubiquitous computing was at the time. And well, the internet's just getting going, right? It was yes. The the I I um, worked with um, some of the computer science people there to build the first homepage. In, um, in um, anyway, it was a it was a time when the computation was you know. Uh, well celebrated, but it wasn't, it had become personal. We'd gone from mainframes to personal computing, but this idea that you could have a handheld computer mm. was, you know, astonishing, right? And they needed somebody to make that, to imagine what that could look like. And what was interesting about that time, and I think it hasn't changed now, is that the only scenarios that people had and that they'd written the DARPA grant on were kind of these paranoid security scenarios of how you could have, you know, a house full of cameras surveying where, um, you know, if anyone approached. And there was nothing about how you could um, make this, how this could be important to a good life, right? Except, um, yeah. uh, except this idea that you would be secured in... Um, you know, I think quite the opposite is is the problem. Is that who cares that you exist, right? No one's no one's coming to visit, right? Um, let alone uh, anyway. This idea of materializing what ubiquitous computing could look like was mm. my charge, and I b helped build the um, artist in residence program with Rich Gold um, while I was there, and invited several other artists in. And actually, that was an interesting project as well because I could speak geek, if you will, and uh, and could speak art. I spent a lot of my time matchmaking, translating. Right. That seems to be your uh, your comparative advantage in, in all these sorts of things, right? Uh, uh, the, the ability to bridge these two worlds in a way in which so few people in the world can. Yeah, I, and I don't think it's... Um, uh, <laughs> An ability. I think it's a hard one. I think it's it's right. um, it's something that um, you know to be able to motivate why uh, you know electric paper and turning around little black and white balls um, would be important, um, and then to be able to motivate to a um, you know a computer scientist who why um, emulating the um, there's a beautiful piece that Paul DeMarinas did that um, when people, it's apocryphal, but nonetheless beautiful, the, um, the potters, when they were talking around, um, you know, chatting with each other, their voice, like a record player, um, went into the clay as they kind of, and so uh. he reproduced this. And why would that be interesting? So, I, you know, the cultural translation um, really means that you have to, I mean, you have to be interested in both of those areas yourself. There's no faking it, is what I'm saying. Um, so, so tell us about, uh, keep it, keeping it uh, concrete, tell us about Livewire, the, uh, your most famous project from uh, Xerox. Oh, yes, that's an interesting um, piece. Uh, in materialising what ubiquitous computing could look like, there was a whole lot of... Um, projects that I built. Um, but the one that really 
I think Livewire um, was the most problematic, if you will, <laughs> in so much as it was simply a, a wire that hung down in the corner of the room of the um, computer science lab, not far from the coffee pot and outside of the director's office. And there was a few bean bags around, but um, it was there. So it was connected to the local area network and it would wiggle when traffic went by. It would wiggle a lot when a lot of traffic went by. And so whenever you were trying to do something on the computer and you were downloading some files and they were going really slow, you could look out and see, oh, it's really busy. Somebody else has, you know, got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. And um, otherwise you could see, you know, you just had a general sense of the, what was happening on the, um, the network because otherwise the computer science lab was like, you know, people in their offices quietly tapping away on the keyboard. No one knew what anybody else was doing. And it was very much the paradigm of the personal computer, which is kind of, it's not evident. There's no kind of convivial sociality to the, um, the work in the way that those potters around the, um, uh, you know, had. They were chatting with each other and they were laughing, but they were still getting work done. That's not the case in personal computing. It's a very privatized paradigm. So um, this live wire sat up there and people thought it was peculiar and um, not very... Uh, but what was interesting is how it was used. Everybody started um, commenting on it, right? And the kind of social mm. learning that happened around it Oh, that's just the local area network. Don't you understand? That's not the whole internet, right? And people could get that, oh, they started to see the structure. Um, they started to see that um, Mark Weiser, who was the director of the computer science lab, said that just from that kind of peripheral monitoring that it provided, he knew when the backup started um, every night. He knew when a, when a, um, a hacker broke in because it was unusual activity. He got to read the sense without actually paying any attention to it. It was just there. And it became a bit of a hit as the, um, uh, the tour of you know, this place. There was nothing else to see except geeks working on their computers. So. Yes, yes. Very, um, you know, the first stop and the last stop on the tour as people talked about what, you know, what was actually going on and why, um, why it was wiggling or not wiggling and how long it wiggled for and what a packet was and all of the <clears throat> things that people didn't quite know. So this is, this is just one of about uh, 20 projects you've done that I am deeply fascinated by. So uh, I'm wondering if we can just uh, uh, fast forward through a, a range of the projects that you've worked in your careers, and you can just give us a little snapshot about, uh, about, about each of them. Um, so you, you moved from uh, uh, West Coast US to the East Coast in, uh, in the late 1990s, is that, uh, is that right? Uh, around the time when you and you and Dalton met, uh, and then uh, just just let me fire some projects at you, and you can uh, you, you can you can you can tell tell us about them. Feral robots. Ooh, that's when I moved to um, Yale, and I took my first faculty position at um, in the engineering um, in the faculty of engineering and mechanical engineering, and I had to develop a um, robotics curricula which I did. And I first of all tried it out on some 15-year-olds in the Bronx, at the Bronx River Arts Center. Um, 
uh, before I tried it out on the Yale students. And the 15-year-olds in the Bronx did as well as the Yale students, I have to tell you. But it was really just to take these, um, at that time, 1999 was when Sony's Ibo was released. And this was the first kind of high-end robotic dog Mm -hmm. um, on the market. But there were many other cheap little ones for about $30 or $19.99. And so we took those uh, inexpensive robots and um, first of all, we dissected them and had a look at, you know, what was hand soldered together and where that might have been made and how, what chip was in there and, and how these worked. And then we put them back together that's the um, <laughs> the nice thing about robots. You can vivisect them, but then they <laughs> they can come back. And we upgraded their raison d'etre. So we gave them a new nose and a new brain. And so we would prepare them and research a public site that had a contaminant. And the dogs would be programmed to sm sniff, if you will. It appeared to be smelling out um, the contaminant. And so when you release packs of hot-rotted feral robot dogs on public sites the um, <laughs> press will come they you know the, and um, the you know anyone can understand we were taking you know 20,000 samples a second um, but and but because it was displaying the information in the movement of the dog and when they hit a high point they might roll over and play dead or if they um, as a pack they might converge on a on a high point and um, start barking the national anthem if that was <laughs> programmed in them. But this idea that um, because they were displaying the information in their movement, anyone could understand, you know, a two-year-old or a, the grandparents that came could um, could see what the dogs were doing and they could say, oh, yes, there used to be a pumping station there. or the, You know, so people could... So you were setting them loose in contaminated sites, right? In contaminated sites and, and the... The attention of the press, and it's a very difficult thing to talk to television news journalists, but I'd argue even the television news, news journalists could understand what the dogs were doing. <laughs> and, and they would ask the students who had programmed them, you know, what is your dog finding? What does it mean? What do we do about it? You know, and of course the students had been working with these and would. And so it really um, created a, an opportunity for evidence-driven discussion about, you know, a shared problem, a public site, you know, a park or a school. It turns out that a lot of schools in the U.S. are built on what are called Superfund sites, these highly contaminated mm, sites, because mm. schools are poor and contaminated sites are cheap, and so they somehow go together. <laughs> it's a strange logic, but um, we uh, explored 11 different school sites. Um, and it's an opportunity to really think about, uh, you know, with many diverse people, um, what we can do. And those kids that had programmed the dogs, the, the first bunch in the, in the Bronx, they were on every talk show, they were on every radio, and they were invited to talk to the EPA engineers and the, you know, Con Edison had hired an engineering firm. Just because they had this little robotic dog, they became part of a larger discussion, and I think that was very successful. So then uh, let, me, let me take you to uh, Upside Down Maple Trees, your exhibition at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. Who plants maple trees upside down and, and how do you plant a tree and, and why? <laughs> um, the, uh, that was a piece commissioned by the, um, the opening of the Museum of um, 
uh, well, yeah, the, uh, the opening of really it's become the largest um, contemporary art space in the um, in the country, and it was also an interesting and controversial piece. Um, not only with the well, you know, I really respect that the that the curator Laura Heon and the forget the curator. How do you plant a tree upside down? <laughs> um, well, I was a sort of a not not well known young artist and they it was brave of them to commission me to do this and 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 it's since become a kind of a fridge magnet for the museums <laughs> literally but you plant these trees upside down first of all why do you do it it's because we see trees as these kind of static icons of that uh you know in effect they just point up um, we don't see them as these dynamic, adaptive organisms. And I'll have you know that the white spruce up here has um, 10 times our genomic material. It's 10 times more intelligent, or at least 10 times more complex than we are. We think of little mice and we experiment on little mice because they have 10 times less genomic material. But, you know, we're the little mice to these these uh, white spruce. The the um, maple, the flame maple, doesn't have quite as large a genome, but it's still an interesting organism that's dynamic and adapting. And by turning them upside down, you can see how adaptive they are. Right? They, uh, the uh, by opposing the gravitropism and the um, you know they're growing towards the light. They, um, the phototropism. They, uh, you know, we're mixing signals that we thought were the same but these trees figure it out literally within minutes of being put wow. upside down their leaves turn around and then their whole lignation machinery grows up and so you can see the tree logic you can see the logic of the trees actually in action and every time you come back you can see how they've adapted more and Although I've been accused of being a tree torturer and and many other um, uh, you know questioning the cruelty of um, suspending these trees, magnificent trees, forty feet in the air, um, it's actually a delicately tender and attentive piece to really see how they think and what they do when put in an unusual circumstance. Uh, polycarbonate tubes in the Hudson River that uh, glow when fish swim through them? Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, the, that was buoys, as they say. In America, they call them buoys. In Australia, we call them boys. I think they have to disambiguate between the young males. and, and Just to make clear, you're not submerging young children in the water. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. So the, uh, this array of boys... Um, uh, I, now I say buoys, I'm sorry, <laughs> um, uh, actually have two levels of lights on them. They're, instead of being round, they're um, long. So they project um, about a metre up and about a metre below. So three foot up and three foot down. Um, and at the water level, there's a light that goes on when a fish swims under, a sonar sensor. Um, and when at the top of the buoy, there's a... Um, 
a an always-on light that shifts from a warm red color when dissolved oxygen is low to a cool blue and green color when dissolved oxygen is is uh, high. And um, and the other thing about the buoys is that, that they're a network. Um, and the important part is that we have to change our relationship to what I call the unsure line, to um, where we build with buoyancy and tension rather than with rigidity and mass. So these um, embody that idea that we can build um, on and in the water in a radically different way to how we have been building. And it's thousands of times cheaper and uh, about hundreds of times stronger to do it that way. But nonetheless, um, uh, this is very important as we are shoring up these unsure lines, as, as you um, know. So there's a real engineering paradigm in there, but it's also an invitation to understand this, again, a dynamic environment where the buoys lean further with you know, um, the velocity of the water underneath. So you can't really tell the speed of the water in, in the East River, um, which is a ferocious tidal current, uh, probably one of the fastest in the mm. world. So they lean one way or the other. Um, you can also see, um, oh, when the dissolved oxygen is high, there's more fish there which makes you realize, oh, yes, dissolved oxygen is just like breathing. Oh, the fish can breathe. Okay, yes, that would make sense. So it's a way of under allowing the passers-by to understand the, the, uh, the fish life underneath. It is, but also to query it, right? So you can, you can text the fish, and the fish will text you back and when the eels are coming by or the alewife are. How do, how do fish text you back, uh, given their lack of uh, opposable thumbs? They... Uh, they aggregate the situation um, from the sensors that are available, and um, with an AI application, um, they, um, you know, just like any other AI application, they um, inform the the model that I'm using to interact with people with their own behaviour, and so the fish will tell you, yes, it's it's us, the alewife, where where um, the herring, where shooting up it's uh our, you know it's breeding time we're going up for some, you know some parties up the river right <laughs> we need some fresh water so we're going so they inform the uh and popularize the understanding of what's there and why it's there and and really invite us to develop a, a new relationship a better relationship with these lovely organisms and then you've got an avian project, which is sort of a companion project to the fish one, this uh, For the Birds project, in which uh, birds are able to experiment on humans by, uh, by landing on different perches. Tell us about how that works. Yes, well, I'll tell you, I've just actually, I'm just launching a flag here, because um, all of these projects are ongoing, and, um, and it's a beautiful flag. I can just show you right here. Um, it's iridescent. Good for me, but less useful for podcast listeners. <laughs> I know, I know, but it's it's a it's a beautiful iridescent flag. It is beautiful. It is very iridescent. <laughs> and an iridescent plastic that rubs together um, on and creates a static field, and so that static field will um, attract any of the um, mercury ions or the heavy metals that are actually. Um, 
extraordinary uh, levels of pollution in and around, particularly these northeastern universities that that heat with this oil that is um, full of heavy metals. Anyway, the bird feathers really it uh, it wets onto the uh, bird feathers and it actually changes their their weight, but this attracts them and it's actually an invitational nest. So um, the through the two bars that take the hold the flag back to the building is actually a nest um, for an eagle um, mm. and I take bets on whether or not and when the um, eagle will nest there I've obviously I'm situating it where I think they will nest and uh, the idea it will attract the metal ions away from the fledglings and the nesting um, organisms but the you know, the idea that we use um, these invitational nests I want to put on the front of every building where, you know, um, instead of using an image of a of an eagle, which they like to use in uh, all sorts of places, um, we actually have, you know, we create habitat for a real eagle. Um, and we learn a lot about whether or not they like it. And I raise money to do these by taking bets on. <laughs> it's about a 10 to 1 bet at the moment. Um, so if you want to place a bet on whether or not it'll be inhabited next season, um, I'm taking those bets. But really the other um, <laughs> idea is that um, uh, the I think it was important to say that one that I set up in Chelsea with had a perch, which was effectively a gun, um, and, and it was a whole, it was on a green roof. I designed the habitat to be delightful. And I had a feeding table um, where every morning and evening I would um, sprinkle out um, food automatically. And so we could see on the table whether or not, you know, who would share a plate and who would, you know, who would feel only worthy of gathering the crumbs from underneath. And, you know, by setting it around a table, we can recognize human relationships imposed onto the birds, which of course is social and, um, you know, and, and as interesting as um, uh, human dramas. But the, um, the gun perch was pointed right at that table so that a bird could land on the perch and shoot the gun. It wasn't a gun per se. It was a high-pressure water valve that would have shot every other bird off that table, the feeding table. Um, so the birds could fire the gun at themselves? Well, a bird could yeah. um, land on that perch and fire it at every other one and then monopolize all the nutritional resources for themselves. So would they use the gun for that kind of technical advantage? That, or would they, in fact, there was a Ferris wheel as well that required birds to, a bird to jump on. And as the Ferris wheel went around and around, every time it went around, it let out some more seeds. So the bird that was going around was actually delivering seeds to the others because they couldn't eat it. So which one would they do? Would they use their gun to monopolize the resources for themselves or would they you know, playfully use it to share with all of their fellow friends? And I'll have you know that the pigeons, in this case, worked out the, um, the Ferris wheel within 15 minutes of me putting it up there. And it was going constantly. There was somebody, there was some bird, they took turns, they were all um, using it. And that gun, it was triggered four times in three years. So wow. that's very interesting because it was a very handy perch right near you know, a feeding table. Why wouldn't they 
um, land on it accidentally even. But somehow they'd communicated, oh, don't land there. That's not fun. <laughs> so we learn um, that pigeons are in fact peace-loving and playful and don't like guns. And you also did one with uh, bird perches, which when the bird lands on them would pass a message, would, uh, would uh, play an audio message for the humans, right? And then the birds could uh, move around different perches and work out which, which message they, they wanted conveyed to humans. Exactly. Um, you know, humans are kind of dumb and need these things spelled out for them. And so these lovely perches that were in the Whitney Biennial and at Mass Mocha and at, um, I put them around a number of different places with a variety of different messages of, you know, um, when they land on them. Would you please go and get some of those health food bars from over there and sprinkle them around here? There's a good person, right? Or, um, <laughs> you know, explaining how um, people can share nutritional resources that um, we don't have to, you know, we as a species don't have to monopolize them. And this whole idea that we're somehow um, uh, interfering with the birds or with wild animals if we um, share nutritional resources <laughs> is like... Um, uh, yes, we are interfering, right? We're changing the entire climate. Where you know, but it, you know, you can make it good. Right? This whole idea that somehow you don't feed the animals, when that's the essential transaction to build trust and to learn about each other, and it's um, it it bothers me that there is this kind of righteous hand slapping that. Um, don't feed them because they'll become dependent on them. We're in the, we're all in this together, right? We're figuring out what um, what a delightful biodiverse future might look like. And frankly, I would rather it be biodiverse than not. And feeding the birds is the way that I've developed trust enough sufficient to I've got a, a little book of poetry coming out on translating bird songs um, into lyrics. Um, for the songs um, into so humans can understand them and really understanding what it is the birds are saying to each other in this real-time daily updated oral map that they are producing and I've only been able to do that because of course um, I share some you know it's an it's an exchange economy right I share some food and and they hang around for long enough to share some delight with me so so each of your projects are fascinating enough that uh, that, that we could uh, we could spend an entire podcast on them but let me let me press on with a with a with a final few uh, life cycles life cycles i'm doing a new edition of life cycles here um so i cross-dress bicycles with um tyvek um i do a lot of things with tyvek and i just have to put in a note that i often get um tyvek is a high density polyethylene material, it's a plastic. And many environmentalists question me on whether and why I would use plastic. And I have to assert that um, plastic is not bad, right? It's how we use it that's bad. So <laughs> plastic can allow us to do many things that we couldn't otherwise have done, like cross-dress bicycles in a lightweight um, material. Um, and um, I have a whole number of things on it, but one of the successful things has been um, to do on-street advertising. So in New York City, 
there's an experimental theatre and there's a children's music school, neither of which can really advertise $400 for, um, you know, three days in the Village Voice for Half a Line is, they don't really have that budget. And it's $40,000 to put an on-street ad on. So I matchmake with the people who park around that area and they um, cross-dress the bike for $50, the Children's Music School has each of these bikes parking around the area, advertising on street that would otherwise. And the, the cyclists, you know, earn $50 for you know three months of advertising, parking where they would otherwise park. We've got another um, part of that, which I think is really important to assert the independent anarchistic mobility of cycling that's so lovely and of course, doesn't pollute the air for other people um, with a, um, the bike messenger. And that's a persistence of vision display on the wheels. So um, it makes an image. And every time you go through an intersection or along the, the um, uh, bicycle uh, route, the seahorses that live on the East River jump up onto the wheels or the number of fatalities at that intersection appear at that intersection. At Connecticut College, I did it with um, every time a cyclist goes through the intersection where a kid crosses crossed the road and was killed, um, his artwork appears on the wheels. So this is geolocated um, uh, information that gets programmed into the local area. It's ephemeral, but it's durable. And it's a delightful way of not only making the, bi the bicycles more visible, um, but also... Um, creating and telling those uh, stories that are important about, you know, our diverse, complex urban ecosystems. The Environmental Health Clinic? Well, that's... And its impatience? And, yes. Um, that's probably the biggest um, frame. Um, and I use that to... Although now I've been... Um, putting things more into the Museum of um, Natural Futures, um, that the Environmental Health Clinic is really a framework that everything I do is, uh, you know, it might be convivial or playful or seem silly, but it all measurably improves human and environmental health. So I think that that's the only proxy, the only metric and the best proxy for the common good is health, right? You can have people who are anti-development or pro-development, left-wing or right-wing, but no one's really anti-health. And so we have a common ground, if you will, to to build things. And, and I think that the idea that what can any one of us do about um, the environmental and political challenges we face, this, this what do I do? I, you know, I, I don't have time or money or degrees or that crisis of agency, I call it. So anyone can come into the environmental health clinic? Anyone can come in and they come in with their environmental health concerns and we figure out what it is they can do to improve measurably their human, uh, their local health. So that air quality, indoor, outdoor, the food systems, mobility, um, water, soil. And the thing about that's very different, even though when I first opened the NYU uh, um, medical school legal counsel came down and tried to close me down several times for impersonating a physician, which I'm happy to do. But um, <laughs> um, they were very concerned that I, you know, was filling this space of, of 
physicians don't even try to improve you know, outdoor air quality. And frankly, I can, with my vertical agriculture systems, you know, just with a, uh, increasing the leaf area index, the canopy complexity um, tenfold, which I can do very easily, um, we can have substantial reduction in hospitalization for all the cardiovascular diseases. So you actually, the external determinants of health, if we acted on those, we can have, as Hippocrates said, to treat the inner, one must treat the outer. So I... So why are they called impatients? Well, because they're too impatient to wait for legislative change or for health system reform to, to um, address local environmental health issues. And, and we all have the power and capacity to, to improve our indoor or outdoor air quality, for instance. And any, any, any one of us, if you did that, you know, the benefits are enjoyed by those you share that indoor or outdoor air quality with. So it has an aggregating effect, which I think is um, redemptive. So I, I'm not sure we're even going to get to the uh, bat billboard and uh, X airport. People will have to uh, to explore your presence online to uh, to learn more about this. But l let me wrap up with a couple of final questions, uh, Natalie, that I ask all my interviewees. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, interesting. I do the reverse. I try and get advice from my teenage self. <laughs> my teenage self had chutzpah, had kind of anything was possible, had a sense of um, uh, watch out world, here I come, that I think we get, um, we get a little uh, beaten down. So I look back to my teenage self and say, you go girl, <laughs> and tell me what I should do again, <laughs> right? It's a little bit the reverse. I think teenagers have the, um, they have it going on and um, bless them for it. <laughs> And I'm speaking to you on uh, on Mother's Day. Uh, we've we've spoken about your uh, your first child, Jumbo, but then uh, with uh, uh, your uh, f uh, former husband, Dalton Connolly, you've uh, got uh, two wonderful children, E and Yo. Um, I uh, remember a, a lovely lovely dinner you had us over for at your apartment, uh, uh, where we had dinner on a table uh, which was balanced on a centre point, where everything had to be placed on the table just so, otherwise every the whole thing would collapse on the floor. Um, I think that's the so, sort of thing that Dalton is black, get, glad to have behind him. <laughs> yes. But, but the, uh, the, the uh, sort of embrace of chaos in your, in your parenting style seems, uh, seems something that I, I really admire. That's, um, I suppose that's what I would um, then again deflect that to my parents who, you know, having 10 children is uh, an invitation for chaos and they um they managed it with such good humor and such um uh energetic kind of embrace of the unexpected because more than anything our children kind of defy our expectations in wonderful and interesting ways and they they teach us that we um that we know so little about the um, complexity of how to live and how to live well. And yet, you know, having a child, I think, uh, is probably the most important um, um, bet on the future. It's this idea that you, 
um, you know, there's something there. And I think which it's just that Dalton had his book, um, Parentology, I'm not sure if you read that, on, on how to, you know, mm. um, make your, you know, how to set your children up for success, which, of course, every parent wants. But they were my children, too. So I had to write a book in answer, which is called Parenteering, um, which is not how to tweak our children, but um, what we can do to make the world the sort of place we would like for our children, right? So it's only by demonstration that we can actually parent. And um, I'd like to make this world a little bit better for my kids, and which is what parenteering is about. It's a mashup with engineering and whatever it is that orienteering. You have to make it work somehow, and there's no formula to do so. But um, But there is a sense that I tell the students that come to me, like the suicidal students, I call them, that, um, that have this idea that, um, you know, they print on both sides of the paper, they, they ride their bikes, they, you know, they're vegan and they, um, but wouldn't the best thing be for them to suicide? Because then they'll have a smaller carbon footprint and they'll do, you know, <laughs> this idea that you, um, the best you can do is less, to, you know, leave no trace, to do not, do not, you know, touch, to, that that has kind of hijacked the environmental imagination in a way that is, I think, tragic. Instead of this idea that do something and make it good, you know, make it. You can make this world a little bit better. You can contribute something. And if you know, I may be misguided, but that's my belief, and that's what I work with all these wonderful students. And you know, I'm blessed with most magnificent children that I learn far more of off, but um, that we can actually make it a bit better. When are you most happy? Mm. Interesting. When um, I think uh, Thoreau said that, you know, when a bird landed on his on his uh, epaulet or on his shoulder, he thought it was the most um, he thought he was somehow crowned or given an, an epaulet. Um, I think that that moment of wonder when you're watching two earthworms, kind of, uh, which I've just got some beautiful video of, actually one of the earthworms was helping the other one, kind of fixing a little broken thing. And just when you're just wondrously engaged with the complexity and uh, unpredictability of the of natural systems. That's certainly my favourite state. That state of wonder. You travel as much as anyone I know. You work on more projects than uh, seems humanly possible. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, interesting. I think to do what I love and to love what I do. Um, I don't really um, exercise. In fact, I'm anti-exercise. I'm anti the kind of routination, routine, routinization. I don't even know the word, right? <laughs> so that um, to be physical and to be in the world, I think, is about a joyous kind of engagement, not a training for something 
potentially in the future. And so, for instance, the um, thing that I am training for um, is a biannual ride that I've developed for Barcelona, um, where, do you know the opening scenes of Wonder Woman, where they're doing yes. um, mounted archery? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so mounted archery is a, is a sport around here. And so I'm getting good at it. But um, I've changed the arrows. And so in just early fall and um, just before spring in Barcelona, we'll be riding through um, the city, inviting anyone who's had a bird strike to, um, to put a big red circle on their window. And we will shoot them with my X arrows, which have a little iridescent dye in them that splashes over the window and marks makes the windows very visible for the migrating birds so they don't in fact smash their skulls on them. So this kind of glamorous ride <laughs> through um, uh, Barcelona twice a year is my new, um, you know, getting fit exercise. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Natalie, which um, person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uh, certainly there are important people. Um, my own parents are, um, you know, beautifully um, indomitable, right? <laughs> Nothing can get them down. They, um, they keep going. Um, and if they can do it, well, I can do it too, right? That sense of I can do it. But there's many, I mean, people are good. So many people are good. So many small and um, and heroic actions, um, I think, reinforce that sense of just how wonderfully good people are um, and how the world actually loves us, right? The world is complex but understandable. And um, every single delightful moment... I think communicates a sense of um, you're okay, you can keep going, you're not in the, you're in the right place, right? That sense of wherever you are, whatever you're doing, it's good, it's fine, and um, <clears throat> I think that's what uh, keeps me going. Not that I'm right or wrong or any certain knowledge of either, um, <clears throat> but that I. I belong here. There's a sense of belonging and therefore, as opposed to that terrible sense of, you know, we are somehow not of the world, right? We are somehow mm. in a little mm. urban subculture that is foreign to and bad for the world. I think the reverse. I think we are very much part of the world. And so what, whatever we think is okay. Well, eco-scientist, artist, experimental designer, thinker, polymath, uh, Natalie Jurijmenko, it's been a delight to speak with you on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's delightful to speak to you too. And you didn't say Queenslander. Come on. <laughs> and Queenslander. Mackay woman throw and throw. Yes. Thank you so much, Andrew. Delightful. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, 
I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.